Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Beckingham, the other co-host. Every fall, Tyler, is the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association's national conference. It's one of the premier events for coastal professionals all around the country, and I think even attracts people from around the world. And I'm really excited that we're going to get to talk about the conference coming up October 13th through the 16th this year. That's right. We're going to have a nice chat with Derek Brockbank uh, and learn about a very unusual uh, ASBPA national conference this year. And then, Peter, uh, an interview I am really looking forward to. We have an opportunity to spend some time with Joan Pope, a coastal engineering legend with the Army Corps of Engineers, served a, I believe, 37 year career with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and has stories to tell, has inspiration, has guidance. Really looking forward to that conversation. Yeah, she's great. She retired in 2012, but as I've come to learn, Joan did not truly retire. She uh, has invested a considerable amount of time in ASBPA as a vice president of that organization continues to be active as a mentor. So we're really looking forward to talking to Joan, who, as it turns out, and I think Derek Brockbank is gonna help us uh, tell this story, is the recipient of a major award from the organization this year at the conference. So uh, it's gonna be a good show. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Derek, it's great to have you back on the American Shoreline podcast. It's been a little while. Before we get into the conference, which I know will be a great little virtual event this year, I'm curious to know how you've been. How has your summer been? You know, it's been good. Uh, I'm always excited to be on the show. It's nice to catch up and hear how you guys have been. Uh, but I've, I've had a good summer. Uh, I have I work from home anyway. I'm the only ASBPA staff in Washington, D.C. So my work uh, situation hasn't changed much. And um, I'm very, very blessed to have my daughter in a very small daycare. So I've, uh, you know, she's been back in daycare since July. And so, you know, I count my blessings. 
Well, Derek, I have to say we've been uh, in touch, of course, host of the Capital Beach podcast and, uh, you know, executive director of the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. You've had a lot on your plate uh, this year, as we all have, but a good chunk of that has been adapting to COVID conditions. And you have your uh, D.C. Uh, summit that you were quick to move to the virtual space. I think you might have been one of the first uh, national summits to do so. Uh, but you also made the decision early to transition the fall conference to virtual, a decision that I'm sure was difficult. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, what was going through your mind? And I mean, even the decision to have this at all, uh, it seemed like you were really on top of you and the NBA, the NBA with the bubble and Derek Brockbank going <laughs> virtual with the, with the conference. Uh -huh. Yeah, well, you know, in, it was a hard decision at the time, but in retrospect, it was very much the obvious one. Yeah, we, we turned on about two weeks to move our in-person DC summit to be a virtual event. Um, we were using Zoom for the very first time. And of course, now it feels like we've been using Zoom since the beginning of time. Um, but yeah, sometime around mid-April, uh, we decided we just needed to go ahead and bite the bullet and um, say we weren't going to be in Long Beach this year. Uh, which was disappointing. It was going to be our first time out on the West Coast for a national conference in, in almost a decade. Um, but we just, we couldn't see the the situation clearing up enough that people would want to travel to the West Coast for a conference. And so um, we said we'd move it online and we have and uh, really grateful we have. And we've had a, a you know, just a fantastic response um, to that. We've had you know, 150, nearly 150 uh, abstracts submitted for pre presentations. We've got 30-some, 40-some uh, posters, virtual posters being presented. Uh, and frankly, we're getting some keynote speakers who wouldn't be able to uh, join us if they'd had to travel to, to be in person. So it's going to be a really awesome event. I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. Wow. Well, it's going to be great. It's October 13th through the 16th. And for listeners out there, it's virtual. You don't have to travel. That makes it easier to attend. Uh, everybody, the registrations are currently open, and you can find it at asbpa.org. Uh, Derek, it's the National Conference, and it's titled, I don't know if Navigating Stormy Times was the uh, conference title last year pre-COVID, but if it was, uh, it turned out to be a prescient title. Uh, what is the highlight, in your opinion, of the event this year? Um, so yes, navigating stormy times was definitely a new theme when we, we saw what was coming and, and we were hoping that it was only going to refer to COVID and not, not hurricanes, but it looks increasingly like hurricanes is going to be part of the mix. Um, you know, frankly, I think for me, the highlight is going to be able to see any single presentation that I want to see every year we have concurrent sessions and there are so many good ones that inevitably you have a couple that you want to see in there at the same time and you just don't get to see this year every single presentation um, will be recorded uh, unless a panelist or a presenter specifically doesn't allow so I think the the quality of presentations I think are going to be just as good as we've ever had and this year you won't have to miss a single one um, so I'm really looking forward to to seeing them, seeing them on my own time, maybe, you know, later in the evenings, the following week when you want to, you know, eat lunch and watch one or two presentations, you don't have to cram, you know, 12 presentations into one day, you can do a six on one day, six on another day, and then maybe two each day for the next the next couple of weeks. So I'm really excited to that what the technology's brought. And then I'm really excited to hear some of our plenary speakers, I think we'll have some interesting talks this year, which I'm happy to get into if you'd like. Yeah, let's hear all about them. 
Yes. Uh, sure. Yeah. So, um, two panels. I'll start with uh, two panels that I'm really, really excited about. One is a um, managing a summer unlike anything else or any other. Uh, we've got four beach managers uh, talking about how they handled COVID this year. So Gary Jones, who I think has been on your show from Los Angeles yeah, County. Absolutely. We've got um, uh, Kimberly Denacy, who's uh, Ruben Trevino's replacement at Galveston uh, Parks Board. I know Ruben's been on your show a couple times, and and we have the new Galveston Parks Board beach operations person, uh, Betsy Wheaton. Who, if you've never had on, you really should. She's awesome. She's the head of environment and sustainability at the city of Miami Beach, um, and then uh, the director of tourism from Cape May, New Jersey. So we've got a nice perspective from across the country. All of these places faced slightly differing scenarios, but all were you know significantly impacted by COVID. So it's going to be a lessons learned, and what do we you know how are they preparing for the for the winter and for next year. So that's going to be an awesome, awesome panel. Uh, I'm excited to be moderating that myself. Um, another panel that I'm just terrifically excited about, and I think this is really something that ASBPA is, it's it's about time that we do, and I'm glad we're doing it, which is going to be a panel on uh, looking at diversity and inclusion in coastal STEM. Certainly the, the country as a whole has had a, a bit of a racial uh, awakening and reckoning this summer. And um, I think we've we're starting to step up and realize that our, our profession and, and the coastal sciences and technologies uh, industry is is very white, still predominantly male, um, certainly not exclusively, uh, but we need to make help make our profession uh, more reflective of what the country is as a whole. And so we've got four uh, women of color who are uh, PhDs in um, some sort of coastal science or, or engineering, and they're going to be talking about their experiences and helping us start a conversation on, on where we need to go to be more inclusive and more welcoming to a broader, uh, a, a broader set of, of people, and particularly looking at how we can recruit young people of color, young women of color, young women to, to join us in this profession. So two panels that I'm really excited about. That's a great start, Derek, and I think we uh, couldn't agree with you more. Uh, the, the award that you're giving out this year to Joan Pope, uh, one of the... Uh, pioneers as a professional in the coastal field for women uh, who had an outstanding career. Uh, the perspectives and the differences of view uh, that come with diversity in, in decision-making uh, is truly uh, powerful. It does add to the best outcome. Uh, we tend to all get into our uh, frames of mind and frames of reference, and it is the cross-pollinization of view and perspective that I think uh, gives decision makers the best material to work with and come to decisions on. So I'm really glad to see the ASBPA uh, being proactive in, in reaching out and looking at uh, diversity in the STEM careers generally and in the coastal field, particularly uh, just a, a great addition, Derek, uh, more great leadership from ASBPA. Way to go. Thanks. Yeah, looking forward to that. Um, and then we've also got some uh, great plenary speakers. Uh, one I'm really looking forward to is um, uh, James Delgado. So we don't have a lunchtime speaker this year. We're we're not really all of the plenaries. We're doing each each of the four days of the conference are going to be at least on the East Coast uh, starting at noon. So starting lunchtime onward. And so each day has a one hour plenary. So we don't really have a you know our lunchtime speaker, which is you know usually uh, now for something a little different. But James Delgado would I guess be the equivalent. Of that he is a marine archaeologist and has worked and on um, looking at shipwrecks and underwater structures uh, and how they impact coastal um, 
coastal uh, restoration, coastal projects of any sort. Um, and he's been featured in National Geographic and has been shown on PBS and TV shows. He's real. If you've ever seen him, he's a real sort of rock on tour, just a, a great storyteller. So really excited to hear him talk about the role coastal coastal archaeology plays in restoration you know if you're trying to restore a, a coastline and you've got a sand source and that sand source has an old shipwreck in it um that's gonna that's gonna be a challenge and so he's uh he's gonna be talking a bit about that so i'm really excited to listen to him um i think he'll be a great speaker uh and then one of that other, sounds uh, great we've got, yeah anything um, with the shipwreck other... has me in it I, peter knows <laughs> i'm a sucker yeah. Uh, and then we've got a bunch of others, but one other I wanted to mention is uh, Daniel Stander, who is a, a internationally renowned expert in coastal finance or coastal resilience finance. Um, so he's worked as a consultant to firms uh, across the world. He's actually based in London. So another one who probably wouldn't have been able to attend in person, but he's going to come talk about um, how you measure resilience and how you can uh, use how you can measure resilience and turn that and sort of monetize that. Right. How do you how do you create financial um, tools, uh, from, from, uh, measuring your resilience aspect of projects. So, uh, really cool, uh, and a bunch of others. So really cool, uh, set of plenary speakers. And then of course our, our regular sessions are going to be pretty terrific too. Well, one thing I've got to say, Derek, every year, uh, I'm always blown away by the sheer magnitude of material that is presented at the ASBPA conference. I don't believe I've been to any other coastal or ocean, Peter, weigh in. I don't, I don't believe yeah. where there are so many technical presentations. And this year that you can, they're recorded. Uh, and you, I mean, that's, if you really want to just sit down and like binge ASBPA, this is the year. <laughs> This is the year to do it, ladies and gentlemen, uh, which is actually not a bad way to go. Of just be able to kind of tune in, as you say, not miss any of the concurrent presentations. Very cool. Uh, how is this going to work? You know, what will the user experience be like? I've never attended a virtual conference. I, I, I get, you know what? I guess I did do the uh, the summit. I dropped in for a few uh, days, but. What will this one look like? Uh, I imagine you've put some thought into the the kind of the flow of the user experience. Yeah, we have. And not only have we put some thought into it, we actually contracted it out. We realized this was not something we were experts in. Um, and so we, we hired a firm to help us. Um, and so unlike the summit where everything was just, you know, we everyone was seeing the same thing. We've got these different rooms, right? We've got four concurrent sessions. We've got, uh, we've got a exhibitors how do we handle exhibitors how do we handle um poster presentations so we've actually uh contracted out with a firm where we're going to have a very sort of a dedicated website to the conference so anyone who registers will get a password um that will allow them to log into that website and uh then at the set times they can click on sort of the main homepage, which will take them to the plenary sessions and they'll have an option of clicking on essentially four different virtual rooms, um, which will allow them to pull up the, the sessions that are going on in, in those rooms. Uh, if it's, if it's live then live, or if it's happened previously, um, I think they'll be, uh, the recordings will be up, uh, by the end of the day. So you could, you know, if it's Wednesday, you can click on, you know, Tuesday room a, and you can see the Tuesday room a presentations. Um, so there will be this sort of virtual rooms. There's also going to be two other 
I guess we could almost call them exhibit halls. And one is going to be uh, an exhibit hall for all our sponsors. So all our sponsors will have an opportunity to put up a page of information about uh, about their their firm, their work, what they do. Um, they can upload videos, so you can watch a little you know video about what they're doing. You can. Um, uh, s get contact information and there'll even be certain times of the conference where they will be uh, available to chat live. So if you go to a, you know, if you go to Great Lakes Dredge and Docks uh, virtual room and you click on Great Lakes Dredge and Dock at a certain time, you can click on the link and have a Zoom conversation with a representative from them. Um, so that'll be pretty cool. The other one, and then the other sort of virtual exhibit room is actually going to be our, our posters, right? So how do you do a poster on a virtual event? Um, well, each poster session will be uploaded, so each poster rather will be uploaded, and there will be a four to five minute um, audio file that someone will have recorded that will uh, walk you through their poster. Mm. Uh, and then on, I think it's um, Tuesday night, the first night where we have the poster session, you will also <coughs> be able to go in uh, during that poster session click on a poster and then chat live, have a live chat function with the um, uh, with the, the, the poster presenter. So you can talk to them about their poster via uh, either via Zoom room or via an online chat. So, but again, those posters will, and their audio files will be up uh, throughout the conference and actually for the, the, you know, months following the conference. So there will be these sort of virtual rooms. You'll have a sort of central navigation hub. Um, and, uh, and, and then of course, we need to thank all our sponsors. So we'll be having various pages that thank sponsors. And and then actually, uh, we're, part of what we're doing to thank sponsors is when you click on a session, there will be a very, very brief um, ad leading into that session thanking a sponsor. And so that's how we are um, hopefully providing visibility for our, our industry partners um, and also helping make folks aware and, and really thanking our sponsors for sticking with us uh, this year, even though we're not in person. I tell you, it's a, it's a new world, and I, I wonder if this uh, there's a lot of advantages to this structure, uh, this virtual conference uh, that uh, program that you've put together. It seems like even when we're all back together in person, there may be some elements of this that survive. Uh, I do like the fact, and I'll say out there to the folks who are uh, who need to get out, get out, get to ASBPA.org and register uh, beginning on October 13th. The sessions tend to be in the afternoon, so. Nowadays, we can we can you can have a, a regular work day, first part of your day, and jump into the conference each afternoon. Go through, as you say, Derek. There's four tracks there. Uh, dip into these plenary dis uh, discussions, which have incredibly good speakers. Many that I'm looking forward to hearing. Uh, it's just got a lot of power to it, and I I do like the fact that over the course of a couple of weeks, you could actually see everything, which you were never able to do in the old ASBPA conference format where there were so many overlapping sessions all the time. Yeah, it should be interesting. And, and we're certainly thinking about if there are ways to create sort of an in-person online hybrid. Um, that actually scares me even more than uh, more than just switching to online. But, uh, but I certainly think you're right. There's certainly some lessons we've learned this year that I think we'll need to continue even if we do hopefully move back in person primarily no doubt about it well again ladies and gentlemen it's asbpa.org slash conferences you can register there and once you're registered you'll get all the uh, information to go to this virtual uh, conference at the of course the correct time uh, Derek before we close out this little preview segment uh, we I want I want to open it up uh, you allowed us to announce Jones Award on this podcast, and I just think it would be appropriate if we 
uh, gave you a little opportunity to talk a little bit about Joan Pope, uh, who will be coming up next on this show. Uh, yeah, we will. do. Uh, go ahead, Derek. Give us give us your thoughts on Joan Pope. I am so glad you are you are having the chance to speak with Joan. Joan, um, for those of us who have known her for you know just a few years, um, as well as those who have known her for many decades, is just a tremendous asset and a wonderful person. And we are so pleased to present her the Morrow P. O'Brien Award, which is the the biggest and highest honor that ASBPA bestows on an individual. Um, it is for work in the coastal field and work with our organization. Uh, and Joan just exemplifies both of those. As you mentioned, she was, um, you know, breaking glass ceilings as a coastal engineer at the Army Corps for uh, for decades. I might be uh, dating her or me, but I think she's been working on this for, you know, as long as I've been alive. Um, and then she has just held just about every role you can hold at, uh, at ASBPA, um, except for maybe president. So, Joan, if you're listening... You know what's you know what's coming next. Um, <laughs> We're uh, doing some recruiting. Now. <laughs> uh, but she is she has helped lead the way in science and technology. She's helped. She's been a chair of our coastal summit. So um, just a truly uh, wonderful person and a great asset to the coastal community. Um, she is well deserving of of receiving the MP O'Brien Award this year. Well, Derek, we look forward to the conference, ladies and gentlemen, coming up October 13th through the 16th of, uh, of 2020. It's available online. Find it at asbpa.org. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's Derek Brockbank, the executive director of ASBPA. Derek, I think you do an outstanding job with this organization, and, we, and we're also honored to have you as a podcast host on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, one of the great shows, uh, the Capitol Beach Podcast. So really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to uh, introduce us to the conference. And we really look forward to uh, participating. Well, I always enjoy speaking to you guys. And um, if anyone is listening to this and doesn't already subscribe to ASPN, you absolutely should. This is a, a, a great place. It's, it's really where I get all my coastal news these days. So you guys do a great job. Thank you. Hi everyone, this is Tyler Buckingham, and I am pleased to announce a brand new feed on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, ASPN University. ASPNU is your podcast destination to access the cutting-edge thinking and research taking place on the campuses and research vessels of the elite academic institutions on the American Shoreline. Here you will access the coastal discussions as never before, with engaging stories of cutting-edge research, innovative thinking, and students who will soon be the next generation of coastal and ocean professionals. This month, we kick off ASPNU with a four-part series on engineering with nature, featuring graduate voices from the Oregon State University. Well, Tyler, and I think one of the best things about this show today, uh, as we approach the ASBPA National Conference 2020 visions for our coast it's called navigating stormy uh, times as Derek Rockbank uh, pointed out to us uh, we get to talk to Joan Pope uh, one of the legendary coastal engineers I would say um, on the American shoreline she is going to be recognized at this upcoming conference with the Morrow P O'Brien award and we're going to learn about who Morrow P O'Brien is and why that honor is incredible uh, an incredible uh, honor for Joan. Uh, just a little bit of introduction, Tyler. Uh, Joan worked for the Corps of Engineers for 38 years. 
you've got to get a medal for staying with anything for 38 years. Uh, but not only did she have a, a, a long duration, uh, she was critical in coastal research and the development of coastal practices. Uh, she retired in 2012, but uh, as I understand it, there wasn't a whole lot of retiring going on when Joan left the Corps of Engineers in 2012. Uh, she's been very busy since then. She serves as a vice president of the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. So what a great guest to have, Joan Pope. Thank you for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast. Thank you very much, Peter. I'm very pleased to be chatting with you today and uh, talk about the uh, ASPPA and, the, and this wonderful award, which came out of the blue and to which I am greatly, greatly appreciative. Well, Joan, uh, I cannot wait to dive in to uh, the life and times of Joan Pope. I'm sorry, I'm just got to say it. We are excited to learn about about you and where you came from and what you worked on and what you think about the Army Corps of Engineers and coastal engineering at large and uh, the research and changing uh, the changing climate and so on. But before we do, uh, I would like to hear from you why the Morro P. O'Brien Award is so meaningful. Right. Well, for actually, um, the generations of coastal engineering don't go back very far. Uh, if you find anyone with gray in their hair, they probably personally have met and know the people who have founded this profession of coastal engineering that many of us enjoy and have developed a passion for. Murrow P. O'Brien is known as the, the father or the founder of coastal engineering. He's actually the one who invented the term. Before that, it was simply an area of civil engineering or an area of hydraulic engineering. But uh, Professor O'Brien had started the first international coastal engineering conference back in, uh, I think it was 1950. He was born uh, 2002, and by the, the time he was in his late 20s, 1902. Was, 1902. 1902, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. 1902, thank you. Yeah. And by the time he was in his late 20s, he was a uh, professor, assistant professor at Berkeley, and that's where he stayed for most of his, for all his career. But he did a lot of consulting, a lot of work with uh, different uh, industry partners and with the Corps of Engineers. He actually worked on the first field experiments as a, a young budding muscle in the surf guy that were done in the late 1920s off of uh, New Jersey. These were done for the Corps of Engineers, but at the prompt of uh, ASBPA. And it was a short-lived one-year study where they learned how to measure currents and tides and waves and, and worked on developing instrumentation. And from there became the Beach Erosion Board. And even before he had hit 30, he was appointed to the Beach Erosion Board. And he stayed in an advisory capacity to the Corps of Engineers from 1930 to 1980, because he moved on from wow. the Beach Erosion Board to the Coastal Engineering Research Board. So for 50 years, he was the brains behind research that the Corps of Engineers was doing. Uh, 
And when if you went to a CERB, Coastal Engineering Research Board meeting during the time of that uh, Merle P. O'Brien was on the board, it, when he had something to say, everybody stopped talking and listened because mm. uh, he had so much experience and he was so focused and uh, he was kind of frightening because if you gave a presentation, he would see right through to the weak point and huh. have no qualms about discussing that issue or where it ought to go with you. Brilliant man. Very well respected and uh, just it's, a, it's such an honor to receive a award named after this gentleman. Wow. Well, it's very cool to learn about him. Uh, Peter, I'm reminded of another uh, late elder of the field, Orville Magoon, who we have, I think, eulogized before on the pod. And I know uh, when we're hanging out on the West Coast with Leslie, uh, we've we've uncorked a couple bottles of uh, his his vintage. Um, but it's the same story, Joan, of this kind of tight knit community. And you're right. It's only been, you know, it's a hundred year old uh, you know, dedicated science, it seems. So there really is a lot of, uh, a lot of old friendships and, uh, wow. Cool. To, cool to learn about Moro P. O'Brien, Peter. Yeah, it really is. And Joan, I wanted to ask you about the, I, I know you, uh, this is the, the beach erosion board founded in the 1930s, uh, with Moro P. O'Brien is one of the founding members, uh, it is about 90 years since that board was established and uh, beach erosion and shoreline management continue to be, of course, a significant focus of communities around the American shoreline and a special focus of ASBPA, uh, its work and its focus of the national conference. Uh, how have we done, Joan, in that 90 year period? Uh, are, are we better uh, about understanding uh, beach erosion issues, and where are we in the state of the art in terms of effectively responding, do you think? Well, there, there's so much packed into that question. Um, coastal engineering was, I guess you could think of it uh, for its first 50 years or so, before, say before the advent of computer capabilities, was a field in physical model based and empirical based art. There was um, a lot of guesswork. There was a tendency for the engineering to over engineer because they couldn't anticipate what would happen. There was a tendency to worry about waves and water levels, but not to worry about sediments. Hmm. And there was um, a lot of mistakes, a lot of silly things done, but it, uh, it was more of a deterministic art, let me put it that way. Now, as we've developed computer capabilities, we understand much better the physics, we've started to realize sediment is a resource that has to be preserved within the environment we have uh, found coastal engineering to have moved to a far more probabilistic, uh, resource-oriented, and interdisciplinary science. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. Do and I, 
I do. I do. I think, and I, I would say in the 20 years that I've kind of piddled around on, on the coast and worked uh, in the field, I, I think what I recognize about what you're saying is it went from the era of uh, let's build the Galveston seawall. That's going to protect the city, very deterministic outcome based uh, to a point where the project that the Corps of Engineers is considering in Galveston Bay, what's called the Coastal Spine Project, reflects that interdisciplinary sediment-based management strategy that I think is completely different. It uh, doesn't mean it's structure-free as a, an attempt to protect the petrochemical industries in Galveston Bay, but much more uh, interdisciplinary. Uh, oyster reefs are discussed, wetlands are discussed, shoreline uh, management, sediment management are critical components of that. Um, so you've seen the, the profession mature in your career at the Corps of Engineers over 38 years. Can you talk a little bit about how the thinking evolved and how institutionally the Corps of Engineers uh, reacted uh, to this change in philosophy? Because I got to say, John, you know, most of us who uh, are outside of the Corps think of it as a very a uh, stoic organization that doesn't move quickly, but uh, they've obviously grown and evolved and changed. Uh, can you talk about that from an internal perspective, maybe? Yes. Uh, well, first, certainly the Corps of Engineers used to be, uh, all right, let me put it this way. The coastal engineering, as we know it, a lot of the technology and the research behind that technology certainly in the old, earlier days, came out of work done through the Corps of Engineers. But it's become less of a engineering-oriented only profession and more of a interdisciplinary engineering science uh, working together discipline. We look at coastal engineering in the core originally when I first started working at it I'd be handed the shore protection manual and uh, figure out the wave height figure out the stone size then design your cross section and that would be the breakwater that would be the wall N now the first things you start looking at are not only the wave data, but also you look at more at the littoral transport. You look at what the expectations are. There's a, more of an understanding that we are influencing, trying to influence the system toward the interests of man rather than trying to control or protect against something. In fact, wow. it, it's not unusual to hear people talk uh, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, about shore protection. We don't protect the shore now. We did move from shore protection to beach erosion control. We don't really control the erosion. What we're looking at now is coastal management, and that is trying to manipulate in some manner what's going on in the physical side of the coast and also looking at manipulating and managing the activities of the human side of the coast. Mm. 
So it's, I think that's the, the, the transference we've seen, not only in the profession, but also in how the Corps of Engineers looks at things. The Corps of Engineers now, I think, is beginning to recognize that we're not there to provide the ultimate protection. There's no way we can provide the ultimate protection. What we're trying to do is, is support the development of resilient communities that can survive to some level of function uh, with erosion, with coastal storms, with changing coastline conditions, with the natural evolution of the coast. Wow. Does that kind of address your question? Well, it does. And I'll just jump in here and say that uh, I find that to be a really interesting frame of not only the role that the Army Corps of Engineers plays in coastal engineering, but I'm, I'm curious, obviously, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers does a, it is in charge of a lot, <laughs> um, the, the, our beaches and shores being one part of it, but has this f- philosophical shift in the purpose of, does this, is this a, an umbrella that over, that includes all of the disciplinaries within, you know, the, certainly the civil side of the Army Corps of Engineers, or is this unique to the coastal space? And I would also like, as a caveat, did it start in the coastal space? Yes and yes. The, I think, and I might be uh, stepping out of line here because this is the area I love and of my passion, but I think it did start with the coastal community recognizing the uh, fallibility of um, and limitations of what we can and should do in the environmental setting, in the environment. The uh, there's certain areas where you have to deal with absolutes. A dam cannot fail. Uh, waterways need to be kept open for commerce to continue. <clears throat> there are water supply has to be maintained. Those are those are absolutes, and they they can be handled without a tremendous amount of of um, guesswork or manipulation. Where in coastal, you're dealing a lot more with a chaotic system. So the 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 Recognition of resilient communities is important in coastal, but they're developing. I think the core has been looking more at that across all sectors, yeah. especially in floodplain communities, and also in areas where you're looking at the evolution of, uh, say, in changing environmental conditions, changing climate change. <clears throat> the core, though, is has a mission and has to follow the dictates according to Congress and Congress follows the dictates that they see are appropriate for the national development of the, uh, and uh, the, the protection of their communities back home. So the Corps may be asked to do something which is hard to do, like stop flooding on this river. And or stop the flooding of New Orleans. To stop the flooding of New Orleans against a high category hurricane involves building a huge um, 
uh, dam dike across the uh, the across the Ponce train. Right. Yeah. That is a very dramatic and very uh, large scale commitment. A lot of communities on a lot of actions we can take that are much more financially reasonable don't do an absolute, but they make things better. Right. Well, it sounds like, Joan, that 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 interjection of humility into the decision making uh, along the shoreline is. I think it's a strength of the profession as it's evolved. Uh, as you say, immersing yourselves in the in the physical context that you're operating in, trying, I liked what you said, try to manipulate the system slightly to benefit what we want it to do as human beings a little bit more, but understanding that we don't control it and actually cannot dictate. I think that's progress in a substantial way. And it brings up a point that, I wanted to ask you about recently Howard Marlowe, who hosts uh, a podcast on ASPN, uh, talked about the Corps of Engineers and is involved in the federal policy and funding and appropriations uh, issues. And he, in in his show, he 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 proposed that the Corps of Engineers should eventually be removed from the Army uh, and set up as a civilian organization accountable to Congress. Uh, as as the profession evolves and we get into more of this coastal management, less deterministic, more uh, community-based planning, does that, what do you think of that idea? Is the Corps of Engineers the right home for our shoreline civil projects? anymore is have we outgrown that framework or does it still make sense to keep it there in your view well i think the 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 question becomes uh where would be a better place for it the yes it is an odd fit to have uh civil works water resources under uh, a branch of the army that came about because the first engineers in this country, uh, trained engineers as a cadre were in the army, and uh, a lot of the original mapping was done through by army officers, and a lot of the early harbor development was done by army officers. <clears throat> they uh, and the uh, even though I spent my entire career working for the Corps of Engineers, I never did get to wear any green. <laughs> Except on St. Patrick's Day, it, it was it it I saluted and and respected very much the military officers that we had. Actually, the Corps of Engineers has had some remarkably skilled and capable and and uh, and and talented leadership that has come from the Army. There's some advantages to the Corps being under the the army in that it's a little bit more diverse from uh divested from say the political whims and ways that go on with each changing administration unlike some of the other agencies like uh, noaa and the department of interior where the leadership is always a a political appointee who's behoving to whatever are the uh, the political whims of the day and the army has its mission it knows how to go about its mission it can also it's respond immediately because it's already motivated and built up uh 
that way. In other words, it, it, the, if something happens, the Army knows how to pull all the resources together to do it because they have those resources. On the other hand, if you go to other countries and look at how they approach their coastal works and their water resources management, it's usually not, it's very, uh, I don't think you can find another one where it's actually under a military wing. We're kind of unusual that way. So I'm, I'm not going to get into one side or the other of that debate. I understand both sides. I do know that right now, if you look at, um, say, the Department of Transportation, maybe the navigation mission of the Corps could go under Department of Transportation. If you looked at uh, the work on flooding, uh, inland flooding, maybe uh, – uh, soil conservation, it's not soil conservation, natural resources under right. Department of Agriculture or Department of Forestry. If you looked at Department of Interior for coastal flooding, uh, it, it's it, the trouble is so much of what the Corps does as a centralized organization, the only place, there's no one particular place it could go. It would have to be fragmented to fit under the rest of our existing overall program. You step back even further, we do not have a nat national water resources policy. In this country, we everything about water resources is either done through the state or it's extremely fragmented on the federal level. Wow. And why, jo Joan, it, it, and it does seem uh, that that is an – I've heard that stated before, that we, we don't have a national water resources policy that's coherent uh, at all levels of government, clearly a, a difficult thing to do. Has that hindered our capacity to respond to problems as a professional in the Corps for 38 years? Um, if you had the magic wand and could make the system operate better, uh, what, would, what would change, do you think, if if we could move past the politics and the jurisdictional issues and all of that stuff and say, how should we attack this fundamental water resource management issue for our country? How would things get better, do you think? Well, I think we need a national commitment and recognition that this is as critical as having national defense or having national commerce or economics, um, economical foundation. Mm -hmm. We don't look at water at, we we are such a water rich company, a country, I'm sorry, water rich country that we've never really respected the value of water until either it's all gone and we have too much. And I, I don't think we really have had the way with all to sit down as a nation and decide to make water management a national priority. <clears throat> you look to uh, a country such as the Netherlands where um, flooding has controls everything about the way they have developed their country. It is a right of a citizen in Holland to be protected from flooding. Wow, And that, that's a philosophy that we do not have in this country. Wow, that is very interesting. I mean, it gets to this idea of, of, a, of our social 
contract uh, with the government and by, you know, making it so explicit as to be a right man, it is right there at the at the core of the enterprise of the of the government. Uh, clearly, in the case of the United States, the, these projects, I mean, Peter, I mean, I remember when we were at the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway Association meeting mm-hmm. way back last year. And, uh, you know, that waterway is as old. I mean, it goes back to the colonies. I mean, this was a an essential That's feature indeed. to fight the war. It was kind of always there. Then it got expanded. I mean, just the history of the feature uh, is just so different. And we really, it, it's, we really haven't stopped and paused and say, okay, how are we going to treat this? I guess you'd look at the Clean Water Act as being a major, uh, I'm not going to say, I have to, I, you know, I don't want to call it a watershed moment, but it's obviously an important moment. <laughs> um, and you're right. We don't have, we haven't. We haven't put the, this whole thing into one unified policy, and that tells us something about ourselves that we haven't done that. I mean, it's—I don't know if we're burying our heads in the sand or if it is just as Peter you uh, allude to the politics and the jurisdictional stuff is just too complex. Just can't. It doesn't rise to the level of of being able to be an, of national importance, I guess, politically. But uh, I want to change the subject just quickly, Joan. I, I've got to know, where where did you come from? What was your childhood like? How did you, were, were you inspired to to go into a coastal space? Or did, did you start with science and meander your way there? What were your early interests and how did you come into this work? Well, I was thinking about this because I knew you were going to ask this question. And I guess we're all products of uh, where we came from and our parents, what they taught us. Um, my father was uh, grew up in New York City with nothing, but he was a very practical man who could just about fix anything. My dolls never had any problems getting fixed. Um, he he was uh, did not have even a high school education, but he could fix just about anything, and he was really brilliant. Yeah, uh, and he taught me to be self reliant. He taught me to solve problems. So kind of my orientation toward uh, to engineering and solutions and trying to understand problems and being analytical comes from him. But my mother was a, um, a British citizen during World War II and grew up in a seaside resort called Blackpool on the yeah. Irish Sea Coast. And uh, she met my father and came over here and was a war bride. But we would go over and visit my grandparents. So every other summer i would spend in blackpool on the beach uh and i love the beach and that's where i learned to really appreciate the coast because it wasn't a a foo-foo beach it wasn't where you lay out there and get a suntan that was a pretty mighty gray uh stormy cobbly uh dramatically changing beach yeah and so that's the ones i liked i liked I didn't want to go sit on the pristine sand. Sorry for pristine sand beaches. They're nice. Yeah. I wanted to go see places where there was uh, drama, where there was conflict, where there was evolution. And that was the kind of beach that I 
got to see as a child. So that was kind of the background I had, and I love science. I love being analytical. <clears throat> and uh, I'll just relate one short story. Uh, when I was in, I was doing well in school and all my sciences and enjoyed that. I went to see the guidance counselor, and uh, the guidance counselor was looking at my record. Now, keep in mind, this is in the 1960s. And uh, guidance counselor looking at my record and said, oh, you're doing pretty good in science and that. And what have you thought about what you want to do? I said, yes, I want to become a scientist. I'm really interested in geology, and I want to go and do this kind of stuff. <clears throat> and he, he looks at me and says, well, look, you can either become a secretary or a nurse or a teacher. Which do you want? Huh. God. It was, can you believe it? I mean, you can't believe it. I mean, you experienced that, but it seems so shocking that, uh, that a woman of your caliber, that would be the response. Even looking at the transcript, you're like, come on, would you just open your mouth? <laughs> it must have been a little excited. Must have been I, I was a little just frightened of blood to uh, go to, into nursing. So I went into teaching for a few years. Huh. But uh, I, I mean, that, that, that's how much you were talking about how much things have changed. I look at all the brilliant young women that we have entering the field now, and they're just marvelous coming in with such great capabilities and enthusiasm and self-assurance. They know they can go out and do the job. And it's just, it's just marvelous to see that. I, I have to say it is one of, the, I have watched the uh, community of, young professionals and students uh, sh shift really even before my eyes being involved in this for about five years. Uh, and I, I second that, Joan. It, and it, man, it just must be so cool seeing that over the course of your career. So when you, st when you started out, this was not really an open door. Uh, you had limited options, it seems, and you... You go and you obviously you get into college and you're you become an academic and earn two master's degrees, I believe. Uh, and you add, you tack on a few more over the years as well. Um, what what led you to the Army Corps of Engineers? When did when did you start there and how did that begin? Well, after uh, I, I did go to college, to get a degree in teaching earth science, high school science. And I did teach for a few years, but that was at a time when they were actually cutting back on teachers in schools. Uh, we, after World War II, there was this baby boom, lots of kids being born, and there weren't enough teachers in the schools. So they kept telling everyone, go become a teacher. We need teachers. So everybody came out and became a teacher and by that time, the baby boom had begun to drop off and there were less kids. So they were uh, laying off teachers. And I was uh, one of the uh, f most recent hires. So I was look continually looking for a teaching degree or a teaching opportunity and went uh, back to work on a master's. Uh, and then a, a job opportunity came up with the Corps of Engineers. Now, the Corps of Engineers is was very appealing to me for the kind of work they do, not only during World War II is my dad in the Corps of Engineers as a military huh. uh, as a military member. He worked on the uh, port of Cherbourg in uh, France. 
But my grandfather worked for the British engineers. So it seemed like part of a family legacy to go work for the Corps of Engineers. But I did like that blend of, of science, technology, and solving problems. To me, that was very appealing. Tell us a little bit about your career at the Corps, because I do think that uh, you were director of a, a lot of the major initiatives, the development of the Coastal Engineering Manual, the National Shore Erosion Demonstration Program, uh, regional sediment management. It seems like your career in the Corps had this academic and research focus. Can, can you talk about that a little bit, uh, enlighten our audience as to the topics of research that you worked on in your 38 years. Okay, well, I first started working, when I first hired, I was, uh, I worked with the Buffalo District of the Corps of Engineers up in the Great Lakes. And for coastal junkies who um, may think that's a silly place to start, the Great Lakes is a marvelous place to learn the basic principles of coastal engineering, because it's uh, like a step up from a physical model. There's every mistake That's you great. can imagine has, hap- has happened up there over the years with different types of shore protection. The water levels go up and down. The waves periods are much um, the waves are much steeper than you see on an ocean coast, and they come from storms that you're experiencing that day. It's uh, sediment starved shoreline because of. Um, uh, simply a general uh, a, a rise in the water levels on the Great Lakes. There's a lot of things to learn working in that environment. And I was in the Buffalo District for about 10 years and then was hired um, by uh, Dr. Robert Whalen to work with Cirque in Vicksburg when Cirque moved to Vicksburg and he was rebuilding Cirque. That was 1983. I think we're going to um, need a what what what's circ for for those of us that don't I'm know. Sure. The Coastal Engineering Research Center. Ah, okay. Now, so the Coastal Engineering Research Center came about in um, 1968. It was founded at the same time they start the Congress identified the CERB the Coastal Engineering Research Board. So there was a board that was provide, to provide oversight of a research center that took over from the Beach Erosion Board. Huh. And the mission of CERC was broader than the Beach Erosion Board, but it was, uh, and it started actually up at, uh, in uh, the D.C. area. In uh, 1983, the... Cirque was moved to Vicksburg and eventually uh, merged with the hydraulics lab at the Waterways Experiment Station in Vicksburg and became the Coastal and Hydraulics Lab, which is what it is recognized as today. Right. So, so that's kind of the, the cliff note version of, of what Cirque is or was. And you get invited to come in there. Pardon? You get invited to leave the uh, Buffalo branch, I believe, AU said, and then come yes. into Cirque. Right. Okay. And so what right. were you doing? So I was there as a um, 
a researcher. I had a few projects, one of which was a monitoring completed monitoring completed navigation projects. That was my first big project. And it and gave me an opportunity to work on projects throughout the country. And I also did a lot of work for coastal districts from around the country. So if a a district had a project that was not working as they anticipated, they might call up CERC and say, send somebody out to take a look at this and help us figure out what we need to do. So I would get those kinds of jobs. And it was really marvelous to be able to work just about anywhere in the country on any particular project. It was a little bit like being an uh, being with an engineering, um, an AE firm. That, right. So you were uh, helping the core internally resolve uh, issues, problems, figure out directions on coastal projects that they were dealing with in each district. And then um, I eventually became a branch chief and a division chief and uh, um, a technical director. And during those years, I worked on such things and start the as the um, the lidar program. Some of you may have heard of the uh, Jabaltex or the Joint Airborne Lidar Bathymetry Technical Center of Expertise, which rolls huh. right off the tongue. And we started that as a <laughs> developing a bathymetric lidar system, which gave us the ability to actually three dimensionally see the underwater and wow. see all that character and texture within the uh, the nearshore regime, which we you don't pick up when you do crossshore surveys. Right. And we eventually got started with the regional sediment management program which is uh, probably one of the biggest success stories to come out of the, the research pro program of the Corps because it is embodied and embraced by all agencies now as uh, an area where everybody needs to be working together. Well, it's one. Of, uh, I think one of the things that might surprise uh, listeners who are not familiar with the work of the Army Corps of Engineers is the level of academic rigor, uh, the quality of the people involved, even going back to uh, Mauro Parker O'Brien, uh, when you started at CERC, he was still active as a uh, coastal professional. Uh, it's high level, uh, I think, and it's impressed me over the years uh, at the government service in the research and academic side of the Corps of Engineers. Um, when when you were beginning at CERC, did uh, did you have a chance to talk to uh, Dr. O'Brien about it? And what did he think about the work you were doing back when you started off your career in the 60s and 70s? Well, I did have my first opportunity to meet uh, uh, Dr. O'Brien was um, at his final CERB meeting in 1980, which was at the Buffalo District. The Buffalo District was hosting it. And he was kind of a frightening character because uh, he didn't smile a lot, but and and you knew he could. <laughs> he, I can just picture he, him. He, oh lord! He, he he would sit there paying very very uh, good attention to what you were saying, and he just knew the the question you didn't want to be asked, 
to ask you, but uh, he was also uh, such a lovely man. I remember um, after, at that CERB meeting, and I was just <clears throat> a few years into my career, uh, only four years into my career, and I here I had to give a presentation to CERB. I was scared as could be about the whole thing. And uh, I had given my presentation, and that evening went down to the hotel restaurant and uh, just being seated in front of me was uh, uh, P. O'Brien, Bob Dean, and Bob Weagle, who were the three civilian members of the CERB. And they saw me uh, standing there looking. I was looking for one of my friends to go sit with, and uh, they invited me to join them for dinner. Wow. Well, what an honor so, that is! To, you know, make a foursome at the at the table, and that was the most fascinating dinner because these guys would go all over the place talking about different coastal things, different things they heard that day. They'd invite me to be part of that conversation. They uh, listened to what I had to say. I tried not to say too much because it was just a pretty powerful table to be sat at. Yeah. How, but how it, wonderful. Yeah. He's such a great guy. They're such a great guys, though. Yeah. All of them see, all of them saw that they had a role in mentoring the next generation. They just had different ways of going about it. Yeah. Let's talk about that. In, in, in your career, you mentioned that we're seeing more and more uh, women taking leadership roles in technical sciences and engineering uh, in the core and around the country and, and in, the, in the private sector as well. Um, how, how, why was that important for you? And, and what, what are some of the, uh, you know, the, the stellar uh, folks that you had a chance to uh, help into their career? Well, I think what's um, it, it's anytime you look at let me step even further back where I was going here. Coastal engineering is getting is seeing its clout come about. I think now and into the future by having people with different vantages coming to look at the problem to work on the solution, having geologists working with engineers, having mathematicians working with oceanographers, having meteorologists working with uh, ecologists. It is that community of people who are interested in coastal problems and projects working together that's gonna really be the strength of the profession in the future. And that strength comes not only for the diversity of dis disciplines, but all the, also the diversity in how people think and approach the problems. Uh, women have a different way, of, you know, they left brain, right brain, Mars, Venus, whatever you want to, however you want to um, describe it. Women look at things a little bit different than men. And their motivations are different. They communicate differently. But having that diversity around the table really elevates the whole level of discussion and that happens not only with uh by gender but also by race and 
um, um, uh, religious backgrounds, but that, the, those difference, you know, viva the difference. The more people you have with different vantages looking at the problem, the better chance you have of solving that problem. I love that. I love that. Now, I want to, on this, on this uh, note, and Joan, we've got, uh, we're up against the clock now, so we've got time for a few more questions. Uh, I, I want to ask you about uh, the, this kind of a future trend style question, but earlier in our discussion, we kicked it off talking about uh, the, tr- the kind of the evolution of coastal engineering. And one of the things you said is it, it kind of went from being an art you know, there was a lot of imagination and just kind of envisioning what was happening out there because we didn't have computers. As you say, the computer was a tool that changed the game. And one of the things that we've, Peter and I have talked about quite a bit on this show is all of the data we have now. And even this expression that we're data rich I oftentimes make reference to like Moneyball in sports or the proliferation of three-point shooting in basketball. All of a sudden, our priorities have shifted toward these kind of analytical, dominant um, uh, strategies. And I, I would just, as someone who was able to witness this change are we missing something by, I, I know that we've gained so much understanding with computers. I'm, I'm not trying to like downplay the importance of this evolution, but we've clearly moved away from the, the imagination side, the artistry side. And I'm just wondering, are, do you think we're missing something or is that something we should leave behind? What, what would you say to, to uh, the, you know, the up and comers and people who are in the field now with vis-a-vis that question? You, know, you, you kind of hit on what one thing that is a bit of a, a pet peeve to me. Uh, there is a tendency to rely too much on the m- developing the mathematical analysis side of the young student. Um, pe- stu- people go through school and they often will become uh, focused on say developing a model which is of uh, modeling capabilities uh, and advancing particular capabilities within a modeling environment and can lose focus on what's going on in the real world. It's very important and that a student get out onto the beach, get out there with the sand in between their toes, understand the three-dimensionality, the temporal variability of the system they're dealing with in that it is not only complicated, but also follows more chaos theory than, um, the, than a straightforward analytical process you would like to be able to put into a program. So, I, I hope we don't lose that. I, our, we have so many great um, professors, university programs, and the, but those programs have to have the the funding as well as the wherewithal to try and get their students out doing field experiments and collecting real data 
and then making sure what they're doing in the computational world makes sense relative to that real world that they've gotten to know. It's like a gut check in a way, you yes. know, like I, I realize that you're taking, you know, measurements and stuff still, but there's something to be said for looking at it and saying, does this look right? Does this seem correct? Does this seem like it will work? I mean, I, I really, I don't know, Joan, I'm a, I'm in Peter and I are both, uh, kind of aviate. We love airplanes. We like, we just they think they're beautiful. We love boats we love, you know, the engineering and design of these things and just looking at them, there's clear, you can see it in the design when, when like they got data on hulls all of a sudden and boats started to look, you know, kind of all the same. And, uh, man, I just miss the, the old like 1930s, you know, art deco style curves on an airplane. I just, you know, I realize it might not be as mathematically efficient, but, uh, She's beautiful to look at, and I think that's important. <laughs> Peter, what do you want to bring this thing home? Well, Joan, I, I do appreciate the the point that as the capability to model and the availability of data, LIDAR information, the amount of information that can be compiled now and to do wave simulations and shoreline projections and all of this, uh, are there when you look at the profession and you're talking about the retention of the the basic critical thinking skills that go into understanding a system and not in, entirely reducing it to a mathematical uh, computation uh, when you look around the country at the schools that are uh, bringing the new professionals into the mix um, who's got it right can you can you emphasize the schools or or recognize those that seem to understand this balance that you're trying to to suggest is critical oh gee i i would not like to go there and yeah, okay. uh, maybe leave maybe leave somebody out who should be there um i and also it's really when you look at the schools that we have that are teaching coastal engineers coastal scientists um, they're not very deep. They have one or two professors. There's not a lot of, uh, there's not too many big schools that have um, big programs. They, we have, uh, you know, Texas A&M and uh, University of Florida, University of Delaware, they, Stevens, they, uh, Texas A&M, I think I mentioned them, California. Mm -hmm. They all have pretty good programs and they're very good programs as a matter of fact. I, I kind of wish I, um, had the patience to go back and learn some more. Well, uh, Joan, it was a pleasure to have you on, and, and congratulations, first of all, on the Morrow P. O'Brien Award from ASBPA. Uh, that will be officially announced at the ASBPA conference coming up October 13th through the 16th. It's a virtual conference, Joan, so we won't be able to all get together as we usually do. Uh, for all the folks out there, it's an, a fantastic conference, one we highly recommend. Uh, you can register even now uh, at asbpa.org. Go online, get registered. Uh, we look forward, I hope, uh, Joan, to a chance to hear your keynote remarks at the conference. Uh, but an outstanding award, well-deserved, 38 years with the Corps of Engineers. You're, 
your I know you've been busy since you retired in 2012. Uh, no rest for the weary and the creative and the dedicated. Uh, what would you like to leave our audience with today, Joan, uh, about about uh, your your experience as a coastal professional? Well, we, we've touched on this and I'd like to just, I guess, mention a little bit about where all this may be going. Um, yes, please. We have uh, a lot of uh, issues that are in people's faces right now, but the issue that's going to be so dominant for our business in the future is climate change. And uh, I think small communities and cities and and towns are beginning uh, and states are beginning to realize climate change is not a political issue. It's an issue of reality. And that makes a whole lot of difference with coastal communities, their exposure to storminess, the um, wealth and stability of their environmental resources in these communities, these coastal community areas, as well as uh, sea level rise. So where we have invested uh, human development and put in infrastructure, much of that infrastructure was designed for different conditions and infrastructure is hard to change. How do you raise an existing wall? How do you, uh, uh, you know, you have to get rid of concrete or you have to get rid of stone or you have to modify it. So there's a lot of hard questions that have to be answered. And this means, a lot of consideration of so many different elements to decide on the best path forward. And, and so I think as we think about where the young people need to be trained and we think about where the profession is going, the tools we need, we're going to have to develop tools that can address that need for adap adaptiveness and adaptability and the trade-offs as we continue to try and promote resilient activities along the core, along the coast. The big challenge of our time at 100%. I think the, uh, the days of climate change denial are fast coming to an end. The reality uh, speaks clearly to us. The demands on this, on this profession, on communities around the country. Uh, we will get fully into that discussion, whether we want to or not, because I think it is being foisted upon us. It's a reality, as you say. Uh, and Joan, what a challenging period for the profession of coastal engineering and coastal science, including all our friends in the geology and biology universes. Uh, this next 50 years is going to be unlike anything. Uh, I think that you and um, Mauro P. O'Brien and all the other great coastal engineers and coastal scientists contended with. We're entering a new era. And hopefully those folks are as creative and dedicated and purposeful as you have been in your career, because uh, we're going to need all the talent we can find. And I'm afraid to say all the money we can find to take on the challenges ahead. Well, thank you. Yes. Well, very well said, Peter. And uh, there's going to be a lot of competition for that money, too. Yeah. There's a lot of other needs out there besides uh, uh, coastal development and coastal management. Uh, thank you very much, Peter and Tyler. I really appreciate the opportunity to participate in your podcast. Um, this has been fun. 
And uh, it has been fun, Joan. Uh, it's been great learning about your life and learning about the role of the Army Corps of Engineers and the, just the great work that you did. And and uh, it wasn't lost on me that you uh, referenced a lot of other people, uh, colleagues of yours, who also. Uh, served our country you know you 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 did it for the public uh you did it for our society and uh we're we're grateful and thank you well thank you 